So this morning, um, you know, every Passover, we set up Elijah's table. And I get inquisitive about his presumptive return, of course. Um, and I've always wanted to sort of give uh, some praise to Elijah from this place. And I have never really gotten around to it the past several years. And so I'm getting around to that today. I wanted to share with you, with you some thoughts I had on that. Of course, adding to our prophecy-laden Torah studies we've been having as of late. So it's proper that we read a little bit about Elijah's life if we are going to kind of uh, massage these ideas of his, uh, his reappearance. Of course, the book of 1 Kings has a lot written about Elijah. Um, there is him, of course, when he builds up the two altars, he builds up his altar to the Lord and has the prophets of Baal build their altar. He rains down fire. Fire comes raining down onto his altar to the Lord. He also uh, chastises the people, brings a drought upon the land because of their wickedness. But I'd like to begin reading um, about that mountaintop experience he has. In 1 Kings chapter 19, it's on page 349 in your Tree of Life Bibles out there. First Kings chapter 19. Okay. First Kings chapter 19. Um, I guess I'll start reading in verse 1. Then Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me and worse, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like the life of one of them. Frightened, he got up and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom bush. He prayed that he might die. It's too much, he said. Now Adonai, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Then he lay down and slept under the broom bush. Then behold, an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. So he looked, and to a surprise, there by his head was a cake baked on the hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of Adonai came again a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, because the journey is too much for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And in the strength, and in the strength of that meal, 40 days and 40 nights, went to Horeb, to the mountain of God. When he arrived at the cave, he spent the night there. Then behold, the word of Adonai came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? I have been very zealous for Adonai's sevaot, he said, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and slain your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it. Then he said, Come out and stand on the mount before Adonai. Behold, Adonai was passing by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountain and shattering cliffs before Adonai, but Adonai was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but Adonai was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but Adonai was not in the fire. After the fire, there was a soft whisper of a voice. As soon as Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. 
Then all of a sudden, a voice adjusting him, adjust him, saying, what are, you, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I have been very zealous for Adonai, for the children of Israel, forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and slain your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they're seeking to take my life. Then Adonai said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you get there, join Hazael, king over Aram, and anoint Jehu, son of Nishmi, um, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholoah, as prophet in your place. It shall come to pass that whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu will slay, and whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha will slay. Yet I have preserved 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Amen and amen to that. Notice all the parallels here between, of course, Elijah and Moshe. You have the 40 days, you have the mountain, you have um, him being called out, if you will, between the cleft of the rock of sorts and the Lord moving there in his presence. I think I would react much like Elisha did, like a child covering their eyes watching a scary movie. Elisha takes his garment off and just wraps it around his head and goes and stands out there. I think being that frightened, that would be a natural reaction. But there's a lot of parallels here. It's not just between that. You have 40 days and in the wilderness, you have the uh, imagery of Yeshua. There's a lot of this, just so many overlapping parallels between Moshe, Elijah, and Yeshua, of course. This puts Moshe and Elijah into a bit of a unique category with those experiences because there's not a whole lot of people that get experiences like that. Um, Elijah does have his earthly life come to an end eventually. If you turn forward a uh, just about four, three or four pages. You get to 2 Kings chapter 2. The heading there says, Elijah in a chariot of fire. And this, of course, is when Elijah is uh, brought up to heaven. It said, Now it came to pass when Adonai was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind into heaven, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for Adonai has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as Adonai lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that Adonai is going to take your master away from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Be silent. Then Elisha said to him, Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for Adonai has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As Adonai lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Then the sons of the prophets at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that Adonai is going to take away your master from over you today? He replied, Yes, I know. Be silent. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, please, for Adonai has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As Adonai lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So both of them went on. Then 50 of the sons of the prophets went and stood aside at a distance from them, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Elisha then, Elijah then took his mantle, wrapped it together, and struck the waters, and they were divided here and there. I mean, there's another parallel, right, with Moshe splitting the sea. So that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now, as they were crossing over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I will do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And he replied, 
you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be so to you. But if not, it will not be so. And as they were walking along and talking, behold, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elisha went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Amen. And amen to that. There is, uh, that's his last day on earth in that sort of capacity. Very unique life. The only other person to be, uh, have such an ending to his life, of course, was Enoch, where they both don't taste death, at least in the sense that the rest of us will experience it. And so, of course, when you think about Moshe and Elijah, you think Mountain of Transfiguration. And we're going to get there in just a second, but I want to take one more stop on our way over there. And that's in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 19. It's on page 624. Malachi, um, one of the last, the last prophet, his name means my messenger or my angel. Um, 624, so it's going to be a little bit farther than that in this one. Malachi chapter 3, verse 19. That's at the very end of the book of Malachi. If you have, well, like an NASB or a different version of Scripture, you're going to find that it's actually chapter 4, verse uh, 1. They kind of, depending on what your Bible's sort of based off from, and some Scriptures add a fourth chapter in there. Some don't. Anyways, there's a little heading there. It says, the day is coming. For behold, the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace when all the proud and every evildoer will become stubble. The day is coming. Uh, that, the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says Adonai Sefaot, leaving them neither root nor branch. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Then you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will trample on the wicked, for they will be ashes." Under the soles of your feet in the day that I am making, says Adonai, save oh, Remember the Torah of Moses, my servant, whom I commanded at Horeb, statutes and ordinances for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Else I will come and strike the land with their utter destruction. Now this here, of course, is Malachi is the last of the books that were written before the New Testament. This is like 4th century B.C. And the Tanakh is, we have to remember, is all that Yeshua and the prophets, that's all they had in the 1st century at this time. And so we, when we read our Bibles, we read the book of Revelation. We see that as sort of the, one of the last things ever written that kind of has all the prophetic stuff in it. The book of Malachi, to the Israelite, to the Jewish people back then, was a book of revelation of sorts. This is the most recent book that they have that's really a canon-type book. There's lots of other stuff floating around out there, but as far as one of the scrolls that you would consider canon, this is pretty much it. And so this prophecy right here at the end, you have, don't miss, that Moses and Elijah are sort of paired together here. You have Moses with uh, the Torah, and you have Elijah's who's coming, uh, Elijah the prophet. You have those two kind of paired right here. 
at the very end of a very important prophetical book. And so, this is fresh in the minds, not only of those that are looking forward to uh, the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's why we have an Elijah's cup and Elijah's a setting place for him is because we're wait. Jewish tradition waits for him to come back on the day of the Lord. Continues. Um, many times Yeshua invoked Moses and the prophets, right, as sort of two witnesses of the Hebrew Bible. There's one example we'll look at um, is Luke 24, 13. And it's on page 1019. We're going to see Moses and Elijah again here. Luke 24, 13, page 1019 in your Bible. It's a little bit different in this one. Luke 24, 13 is... Uh, of course, the road to Emmaus. Um, now behold, two of them on that very day were traveling to a village named Emmaus, a distance about, of about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were speaking with one another about all the things that had been happening. While they were walking and discussing, Yeshua himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Then he said to them, what are these things you are discussing with one another as you are walking along? They stood still, looking gloomy. Then the one named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? Yeshua said, What kind of things? And they said to him, The things about Yeshua from Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the ruling Kohanim and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they executed him. But we were hoping that he was the one about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. But also some women among us amazed us. Early in the morning they were at the tomb. When they didn't find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he is alive. Some of those with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they did not see him. Yeshua said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to put your trust in all that the prophet spoke. Was it not necessary for Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in the scriptures. Amen and amen to that. Now, it doesn't necessarily say Elijah here, but or Elijah and Jewish tradition is considered one is like the quintessential prophet, right? The ideal prophet. The uh, now I know it isn't Moshe the ideal prophet. It's like a yes and yes, depending on where you're reading in there. But here you have Moses and the prophets, and in Jewish tradition, the prophets are summed up with Elijah. That's why they're awaiting Elijah's return for the great and terrible day of the Lord. Many thinkers and theologians would come later and sort of say, well, the whole Elijah thing's been fulfilled in uh, John the Baptist. But anytime these theologians develop doctrines, saying thir certain things are fulfilled, it makes me a little nervous. The prophecy is still there. Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Which, of course, gets us to 
the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Kind of where I was going with this. Moses and Elijah as the two witnesses in Revelation 11 isn't a shocking thought. It's generally held as one of the higher probabilities, of course. But let's take a look at Revelation chapter 11 for a moment. And then we'll get back and finish off with uh, the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. Page 1203 is Revelation chapter 11. Here we have an allusion to Moses and Elijah again as the two witnesses, not called out by name. Verse 1, then a measuring rod like a staff was given to me, saying, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those there worshiping on it, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave it out because it has been given to the nations and they shall trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant my authority to the two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. Man, that little formula there is just drives theologians crazy, it seems like. There are two olive trees and two menorah that are standing before the Lord of earth. If anyone wishes to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These two have the power to shut the heavens so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophecy. They're prophesying. And they have the power to... Uh, they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the abyss will make war on them and overcome them and kill them, and their corpses will lie in the street of the great city that figuratively is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Some of the peoples and tribes and tongues of the nations will look at their corpses for three and a half days, not allowing them to be placed in the grave. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, and they will, be, they will celebrate and send gifts to one another because the two prophets tormented those who dwell on earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. Amen and amen. But if we look at these two witnesses and some of the things that they do, if you look up to uh, well, verse 5, if anyone wishes to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and consumes their enemies. This sounds like some imagery that Elijah, right, he's calling, fire comes down, consumes his, the altar of the Lord. He's brought on a chariot and horses of fire up to heaven. Also, um, the two have the power to shut the heavens so that no rain may fall during the days of the prophesying. That's Elijah did that. In their wickedness, he caused no rain to fall. And of course, striking the waters to turn them into blood and the earth and every kind of plague. There you have Moses. There's that Moses imagery there. This is, seems like some allusions to Moses and Elijah here. Again, those two, very important to the Lord. That's why they appear, in my opinion, at the Mountain of Transfiguration. Mount of Transfiguration. Let's go to Mark chapter 9, page 968. And there's... Ex when we have the Mount of Transfiguration here, I'm not sure that it was 
it was a shocking moment for the, uh, the three disciples that went up with Yeshua, but I'm not sure that they were all that shocked at who was actually on the mountain. When they see Moshe and they see Elijah, this is kind of what they're expecting. They're expecting Yeshua to defeat the Romans and bring in um, the kingdom. And so for them to see Elijah here, they're probably thinking, here it is, it's, it's happening, because that was their expectation. You know, that was the first century expectation. If you get your mind into the mind of a first century guy, they don't have the book of Revelation. They just have it's not. What are they expecting? They're expecting what's about to happen here. So this Mount of Transfigurations, an expectation that they're having would fit right in with that expectation that, that they have. Oh, man, Nehemiah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts. What did I say? Mark chapter 9? Okay, Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Yeshua was telling them, Amen, I tell you, there are some standing here who will never taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. More on that in a second. After six days, Yeshua takes with him Peter and Jacob and John and bring them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant and brightly white, whiter than any launderer on earth could bleach them. Then Elijah appeared with them, with Moses, and they were talking with Yeshua. Peter responds to Yeshua, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three Sukkot, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud came, overshadowing them, and out of the cloud came a voice. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Yeshua. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Yeshua ordered them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose up from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, discussing among themselves what is to rise up from the dead. And they questioned him, saying, Why do the Torah scholars say Elijah must come first? Now he told them, Indeed, Elijah comes first. He restores all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be treated with contempt? I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they wanted, just as it is written about him. Clearly, Elijah and Moses are unique in their roles in the Lord's work, which is why it kind of makes sense to me that they might be the witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. The first century reader, of course, would, I would like to hope, would agree with me. Maybe he wouldn't, but that's just what I'm persuaded to believe. But it's that first century sort of worldview that we have to look at this with. The first century, look at this through first century lenses. When we read the book of especially Revelation, we're reading this through, you know, the lenses of modern day man. And we dissect it, and we have all these years outlines of first three and a half, and then they're snatching away, and all kinds of things kind of get, I think, read into the text, where if you were a, put yourself on the uh, feet of John. If you're John, you're a first century guy, you've seen some horrible stuff. But if the Lord gives you a vision, and you see things that are happening in the last 50 to 100 years, what are you seeing? You're seeing terrible bombings in Hiroshima, terrible things happening to the Jewish people in World War II, you're seeing all the wickedness um, and just destruction of the world today. To describe that would be very difficult. You might take a whole bunch of passages from the prophets and scramble them all together and come up with a, uh, a book of Revelation, say. 
It would be very hard from our first century perspective to describe a prophetic vision from times like right now. The Mount of Transfiguration, of course, gives hope because it's a glimpse into the future kingdom. Um, Toby Janaki comments on this. He said, what did the master mean when he said, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. The three who ascended the high mountain actually did see the master basking in the father's power and glory. So in a sense... These three disciples were granted a foretaste of the kingdom of God coming in power because they saw the king in his splendor clothed in the power and the glory to be revealed when he comes again. This is our hope. And Moses and Elijah, as far as being precursors to that, to the great and coming terrible day of the Lord, I still think does have a, a, a hopeful and prominent place when we think about these end times. We just have to have eyes to see, of course, and our minds considering the first century worldview when reading his word. Helpful to that are first century sources. You think of the wisdom of Solomon, the book of Enoch, the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are sources that can help Give the mind sort of an image of what's floating around in the water in the first century and what is floating through the heads of these apostles as they're trying to make sense of what's happening to them. Some of the later centuries have many theologians and church fathers coming up with all kinds of different ideas and doctrines. I'm just not so sure though those are as helpful as what's happening on the ground in the first century where the witnesses are there, and there's plenty there to sort of uh, develop a first-century worldview that we could certainly live out in this century. In any event, we have open eyes to see and our minds considering many different viewpoints. We just ask that the Spirit guide us, encourage us, inspire us to learn more, inspire us to be seeking uh, uh, maybe the return of Moshe and Elijah as they our precursors to our master Yeshua returning. That is our hope that we may see our king Yeshua return to restore this world and humanity back to the Father. Hag Pesach Sameach.